Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we enter the season of seed saving, of easing into dormancy and beginning to consider next season, forward planning, this week on Cultivating Place, we explore some big thinking for the future in conversation with Severin von Charner Fleming of Smithering Farm, a certified organic farm in Down East, Maine, also of the Greenhorns, a collective who believe we humans must reform agriculture to serve survive on this planet and whose mission is to create a welcoming cultural space and a practical professional resource for those new to ecological farming. Severin, I am really looking forward to speaking with you more here today. Welcome to the program. Likewise. Tell us a little bit about exactly where you are and exactly what your household consists of in terms of humans and plants and other beings that make up your household, Severin? I'm in down easternmost Maine, basically where the where the United States hits the border of Canada on a beautiful bay called Cobscook Bay with very, very cold water. And my farm is called Smithereen Farm. And it's down at the end of a peninsula sticking out into the middle of the bay. And so we're a zone five, even though we're so far north, because we're kind of like a little boat in the middle of this protected marine basin. And we grow a diverse orchard. We have forests mostly on this peninsula. And we have oxen that we're working the forest with. We have sheep. We have ducks. We have chickens, we have turkeys, we have dogs, but our major focus is on blueberries and other small fruit. So strawberries, cane fruit, currants, aronia, elderberries, and then our orchard. And then we do a lot of wild harvest of algae and herbs from the forest edge. And we make value added products. So it's, uh, there's a lot to do this time of year, but it's rapturously beautiful. And you are uh, tending and cultivating all of this land and these food plants specifically as well. For what purpose? Well, we, we start to operate a little bit like a living, like a living history museum, it feels like, because we have so many visitors in the summer. Um, Smithereen Farm is a farm business that produces these value-added goods for sale in the wider world. But then it's also our venue for the work of Greenhorns, which is an organization that I've been running for almost 15 years, which is predominantly a publisher of literary magazine called the New Farmer's Almanac and a publisher, a producer uh, of videos and podcasts and guidebooks and cultural programs, all, all of them aimed at recruiting, supporting, and encouraging the next generation of organic farmers to get oriented and situated and connected up with each other. And so the farm has become kind of a an expression of that welcoming and is very much a venue, not only for our educational workshops and film screenings and, you know, art residencies and scholars and residents, but also for the kind of wider public to come and participate in this way of life that we're advocating and living. And so sometimes when we have so many, so many visitors, I just learned the story of Louis Bromfield. Oh, and he was an, a writer in the 1940s who was writing about regenerative agriculture at that time. And this question of, you know, what kind of institution allows for what kind of work is quite a good question. And, and then even what are the configurations and social formats that are conducive to the project that we'd like to undertake? And obviously, 
a lot of what we're up to is restoration and commoning and reconfiguring our human relationship with the living world. And so it wouldn't be surprising that in trying to kind of inoculate or prototype or enact uh, a culture that's conducive to a different relationship with the living world, that we would have to experiment with different institutional forms and different social norms and that a part of this is performance art. And so I was looking for historical inspiration and remembered Louis Bromfield and he was from 1896 until 1956 an American author and conservationist and he may be a bit similar to Michael Pollan. He wrote best-selling novels and became a kind of gentleman farmer and proponent of regenerative agriculture and soil conservation. And he had an experimental farm called Malabar Farm in Ohio. And he just hosted people from all over the world and, and had kind of performance art um, at his farm. So anyway, I'm gonna tell all my arriving summer interns and helpers and collaborators about Lee Bromfield because I feel like it will help them not be exhausted by all the humans who come and want to see and watch and experience this this place because there is it's quite a lot of um a lot going on yeah and and a lot of a lot of hunger and interest right now i think for this kind of engagement and model but before we before we get deeper into the Greenhorns and the New Farmers Almanac and the work uh, on an ongoing basis there at Smitheran Farm. I wanna, I wanna first of all ask if you were to distill everything you just told me into a mission statement that you might have right now as your kind of guiding organizing principle, Severin, for your relationship to plants right now, what might that be? Well, ultimately, um, it's about authoring one's own experience in the world and participating in one's own survival in the world and regaining contact with a living world on a daily basis, you know, actually, um, what a privilege that is <laughs> and what a what a deep critique of the whole capitalist system to meet more of one's needs on terms that one defines and obviously we're living inside of structures uh settle, settler colonialism uh private property uh you know late stage capitalism uh, a marketplace that undervalues human labor and uh, natural resources, all of which challenge that fundamental equation of humans living on a living planet. But if, you know, even with even with all those constraints, if we if we work hard and we figure it out and we configure ourselves kind of like a punk rock monastery slash motel. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that we can have <laughs> this particular kind of freedom, you know, so we're, we put ourselves, so why are we doing it this way? Well, we put ourselves at the edge of the forest, at the edge of the region, in a very poor, very remote, very wild place. We're making value, pro we're making products that are shelf stable and are highly valued from plants and algae and mushrooms that grow wild in that place. We're hosting visitors who pay, we're running classes, we're working as a group. So there's, you know, eight of us here this summer kind of running the show in this like four ring circus. And then with that amount of people, we can share meals, we can grow our own food. We have time to do clickety clack on the computer coordinating cultural projects and performances and educational programs and you know, kind of a cultural life. And we can also, you know, mm -hmm. chop wood and carry water and plant gardens and harvest them and feed a broader community of visitors um, and the farmer's market that we serve. And then the idea is that we can 
continue to grow and thrive with this land base and with this community praxis that we're developing and have, you know, on an auto a pretty autonomous agrarian cultural space and that it isn't as dependent on, you know, subscribers or advertising or philanthropy or all of the constraints of kind of media and publishing that have so challenged the institutions of journalism. And that if we are, as we are, a place for the expression of farmers' voices and, and or listening and speaking within the farm, within the young farmers movement, it's quite, it's quite important that we make a place that is free like that so that it, the, so that the mission can continue. So before we even go deeper into what that actually looks like on the ground and in practice on a, on a daily and sort of tactile level, I want to go back a little bit, Severin, and get a sense of your history and the context of the early influences of people and places and plants who grew you into a woman for whom figuring out a way to get out of the social constructs that harm us or hobble us and reconfigure how you are uh, engaged within them in order to have this life you just described. Um, who, who were those people and places and plants who, who grew you into a woman for whom that would be valuable? Well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I learned to garden in Los Angeles County where, you know, if you've got access to a hose pipe, practically anything will grow. And we were gardening in this kind of dump site where the landscapers would dump their green waste, the kind of overabundant green waste and we started a farm there and that was the beginning of a horticultural life and that was also the beginning of an organizing life because it became very clear that you know you need you need human bodies there to plant trees together and so the lesson of that time was really just you know tune in with the needs so that was the beginning of life as an organizer and as a as a gardener and realizing how, you know how similar those practices are and it's a constant feedback loop and relational uh kind of improvisation with the with the target which is the young farmers and with the context that those young farmers need so everything becomes about listening and tuning and sensing what do these young farmers need while well, they need places to interact. They need access to information. They need to be valorized culturally. We need to help them practice their voices. We need places for leadership. We need policy representation. We need infrastructure for open source uh, information transfer and technology transfer. You know, we need iconic and exciting uh, public sculpture and, you know, convivial opportunities for conviviality and networking. We, you know, all of these are the kinds of needs that show themselves. And then you figure out, okay, well, you know, should we have a party? Should we make an exhibit? Should we publish a book? Should we, um, you know, throw a protest? Like, what are the ways to interact with this movement of young people who are entering agriculture? And it's just the, t it's like tending a garden, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So where were you born and raised, Severin? I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and went to school in the city and then in the summertime went and basically was outside all summer on my mother's family's farm, which is in Switzerland. And we would just go for the entire summer and just be hiking in the forest. And that was quite a wonderful, magical opportunity, but not not everybody has the opportunity to spend their whole summer outside. No, no. And did you have gardeners in your family? I think my grandmother was a very avid farm, avid gardener, but not, not really directly. Like that okay. wasn't, the gardening didn't come matrilineally. I mean, both of my parents are urban planners. My, my childhood was spent exploring 
you know, public art and place making and public commons and street furniture and mm. franchise design and like identifying the urban center and the civic buildings and landscape townscape, particularly of historic places that we're working to preserve their historic qualities. Oh. So, you know, not very farmy, really, but structural yes. and purpose-driven. And, and I grew up with my parents running an institute in the basement of the house. So this whole, you know, understanding that, you know, your life, your home, your institution, you know, your literary output, you know, your world kind of all collapses inside of your domestic space. That's totally second nature. And that's one of the things that people really like about being here is that the life is the work is the life is the work. Right. So how do you get from Cambridge to Los Angeles and uh, that first hose pipe that fed your first uh, green beings, Severin? So my mother is Swiss and my father is from Los Angeles. And so I went to the college of my father called Pomona College. And I knew going there that Pomona was the goddess of the orchard. And so when we went there, um, we went to visit the botanic garden as I always do and learned about all these glorious native plants of California, which you know is one of the world's coolest floristic regions and saw this kind of native area of the campus. And so then I would go running that area and I saw that there were some guys who were planting an orchard. They were had been informed by the principles of permaculture. And so I was very attracted to that. And I started showing up every single day. <laughs> and it didn't take very long to, um, you know, become the one who was organizing the hose pipe and organizing the tree deliveries and interacting with the, you know, college administration and the insurance and all the things. And then, of course, because the college was called Pomona, goddess of the orchard, and, you know, we all felt very excited to be able to plant and in such a fast growing climate, the kind of metaphoric life of that garden and that garden as, you know, as a podium, as a curriculum, as a place of pedagogy, as a place for performance, that was all, you know, very fecund. And, and the garden is still there and it's lovely. But there, it's a different thing to go into a garden than it is to make a garden. This is Cultivating Place. Severin von Charner Fleming is a founder and member of the Greenhorns, and founder and contributing member to the New Farmers' Almanac, collectively envisioning and growing a more fertile future through reforming both ag and culture. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society. As the American Horticultural Society turns 100, their focus on quality horticultural information is more needed than ever. In the past years, they have doubled down on their integration of science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy in this gardening world. With their in-depth journal, The American Gardener, their reciprocal admissions at public gardens, and their programs, including their new series, Conversations with Great American Gardeners, which kicked off with a great conversation with food and social justice gardener and leader Karen Washington last week. The next conversation will be on January 27th of 2022 with Michael Balick, ethnobotanist and vice president for botanical science at the New York Botanic Garden. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS, and members of the AHS receive discounts on all AHS programs. So for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, 
head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. Hey, it's Jennifer. So many of you podcast listeners will have noted a glitch in last week's podcast break audio notes from me, specifically that for some time, the first and second podcast breaks last week were pretty much the same, which goes to show you that we're just human over here, me and Matt, who tends to the audio production every week, sometimes sprinting, sometimes struggling to get a new episode out in the world. It's good to show our humanity, our faults and fancies, to hold them up and let the sun shine through them and on them, right? Here's another fault line I want to share with you in this shared world we gardeners navigate. I've been a public voice and speaker for several years now, since 2008 when my first program aired on my local public radio station, but more nationally since 2016 with the launch of Cultivating Place. Most of you know this. Everything I do on Cultivating Place is aimed at demonstrating the power gardens and gardeners have to grow the world better on so many fronts of great concern to us all. Gardening does make a difference on individual, communal, environmental, cultural, and economic fronts. I love offering out conversations on cultivating place that run the widest possible spectrum of faces, voices, genders, perspectives, because this fuller view grows me, makes me and my garden stronger and smarter. Recently, I engaged in a conversation on social media with several others about our shared disappointment that the fall speaking roster at one of our major botanical institutions in the U.S. was once again featuring all white faces. As a white face, I'm disappointed in this lack of representation and in this failure to be a far truer reflection of our horticultural world. It was only in the midst of this engagement about a shared disappointment that I saw an aspect of my own agency as a speaker for such institutions. A point of agency that allows me not only the capacity to do better, but also the responsibility to do better. In the past, I have passed on speaking requests that were far more appropriate for one of my esteemed Indigenous, Black, Brown, Asian, Latinx colleagues. But I've never looked at the panels on which I have always been proud to serve. Immediately following this online back and forth, I went and I looked at my own upcoming speaking engagements. It will come as a disappointing and sad, but probably not surprising fact to you listeners that by year's end, I will have been a speaker on an all-white roster more than once. This sits so sharply for me, in stark contrast to what I say I believe in. This hits me right where I live and cultivate. I'll share with you, not as a way of excusing or redeeming myself, so much as to demonstrate for myself and anyone else where to now. I am, as any of you, trying hard to make enough of a living to justify my work, trying to support my household, my daughters, my own old age. But following this awareness about the panels on which I sit, I've returned to event organizers, people I admire and enjoy and believe in, and I have shared my own unhappiness around this fact of overwhelming whiteness. I have offered to return my fees in order for those to be invested in greater representation at these tables. Every organization and organizer that I have spoken to about this responded graciously, and they responded with a commitment to do better. Our horticultural world is rich with a true diversity of great gardeners, speakers, advocates, enthusiasts, experts, and influencers. I should not be 
I do not want to be at any table at which there is not appropriate representation. As a speaker, I have the power to say that in the future, I simply will not be a speaker at a table that does not have appropriate representation. While this awareness came to me too late to authentically reconcile the disconnect this year, expect better from me next year. Expect more foresight much farther in advance. It is not an enormous change that I, as one woman gardener, can do this, but it is a change I have in my toolbox and I intend to use it. I really appreciate the listeners who have engaged with me in conversation around this very gap between my own expressed expectations and mission and the reality of these events, which were great events, but could have been greater. One thing we don't need more of in this world is performative and empty words. I am not accountable to everything or everyone, but I am absolutely accountable to the lessons of my own garden and to you, my garden community who join me here. We, I, we're never going to get everything right all the time, but when and where we see we can do better, we need to meet that moment. We need to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, offer acknowledgement, apology, and start again. Expect better from me. Don't just expect it, but demand it. Demand all the beauty and strength of real diversity in and out of the garden. We're back now to our conversation with Severin von Charner Fleming, an organic farmer and thinker on Smitherin Farm in Down East, Maine. As an organizing member of the Greenhorns and the New Farmers Almanac, Severin thinks big about how differently our future could look from the past centuries of climo, politico, econo, and now corona chaos. As we come back, we learn more about the earliest catalysts behind the forming of the Greenhorns, including running up against cultural structures that did not want her vision for common grounds. It's all very good training to be thwarted as a young person. (laughs) Agreed. And, uh, you know, we're now facing, gosh, you know, yet another drama in the sense that there's a looming threat to our watershed here in the form of a Canadian junior mining company that wants to put a silver mine a mile from our headquarters in Pembroke, right between two of the six beautiful rivers that flow into Cobscook Bay. And of course, the consequence of that project proceeding would be acid mine drainage and sulfuric acid being produced by the mineral ores that are holding the metal, but also hold sulfur. And then of course, cadmium and lead and arsenic and nickel. And I mean, I'm not that old, but I look back at the kinds of struggles we faced with the college administrators not wanting us to do, you know, natural building on the campus. And we had to learn how to pass county building code and stuff. And that was, again, way better than a class was figuring out how to, you know, leverage the press, the local press to embarrass the college and, you know, figure out how to get planning permission and figure out how to satisfy the building code. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was a lot of learning. A lot of learning. We managed. The the college administration quietly bulldozed our... (laughs) earth dome that we built according to the direction of a wonderful Iranian architect called Nader Khalili and we made a stink and we got them to you know pony up the money and we we were the first rammed earth building in Los Angeles County (laughs) so that was fun. This is about what year and you are about what age in this uh, moment? In that moment I think I was 22. And so out of this thwarting and learning and experimenting and um, persisting. Ultimately, you come to found the Greenhorns. Walk us through that and and especially that initial sort of impulse and iteration of what and who the Greenhorns were 
and and are perhaps after Pomona, I went to UC Berkeley, and at UC Berkeley, you know, we were having we. I mean, it was a a, a wonderful place where you could invite anyone to speak, and they would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I became a you know kind of an organizer of an alternative learning group called Safe, it was a student action group, and I was kind of struggling with this question. Well, if if this agriculture is unsustainable and we have soil erosion and we have genetic engineering and the University of Berkeley campus is accepting millions of dollars from British Petroleum and from Novartis to do all these research buildings and to pay for all these facilities and to drive the research agenda of our public university system, you know, well, who's going to do organic agriculture, you know, who's going to get involved in solution making. And so that was an inquiry that drove, you know, lecture series and film series and these films that they had at the UC Berkeley library collection down in the basement were so wonderful but many of them were very depressing and I thought that's not going to work to get more people to do this stuff maybe we need to make a film that's you know an invitation (laughs) we were grateful to get Michael Pollan to come and speak at one of the film screenings we were doing and then the filmmakers who were screening their film called King Corn were gracious enough to go out on a jaunt and kind of teach me what it takes to make a documentary film. And we kind of began this film that was just a film of inquiry about young people getting into agriculture. Why do they do it? How do they do it? What's their spirit? What was our motto? The spirit practices and needs of the incoming generation. Hmm. And just really a very, very simple inquiry, which is, Who's doing this? Why are they doing this? How are they doing this? What obstacles do they face? And basically that's been the film, books, policy coalition, mixers, radio, interview. It's all just similar, similar, same. It's the same thing is, you know, who are these people? What do they need? Where are they going? What can we work on together? Yeah. And so it starts with the this initial sort of seed film and it it grows into a bigger a bigger thought and form talk talk about that uh arc that that develops and and ultimately starts to be the catalyst for even this this greater manifestation of it with community with parties with the uh, that you referenced earlier with exhibits and the podcast. And I, I forget which order they come in um, because there's the podcast and then there's the New Farmer's Almanac. And so, yeah, I'd love to flesh out the rest of how the Greenhorns. Um... It's a little bit like um, lupins. This time of year, the lupins are out now and they're kind of fractal. And I feel like that's, yeah, <laughs> that's a bit, that res- I resemble that remark and the, you know, that the projects are super generative and they kind of spit out a lot of puppies, you know, so <laughs> you ha- you start having a social context and then you start having literary output and then you start having more, you know, more voices and then you start doing radio and then you realize that we need to have policy change. So then you start having, um, you know, state-based coalitions and then, and then that turns into, oh, well, we need a federal policy platform. And then that turns into, you know, and then it turns into, gosh, you know, the big struggle we have is that in other countries, young farmers are, are much better supported. Well, let's get the data to show what the needs are. Okay, well, then let's do a research project. Okay, well, then um, now that we know that land access and student loan debt are the biggest impediments for young people getting into agriculture, what would we do? to address those concerns and how would we get debt relief and how would we change the systems of land access and the norms of of tenure? Okay, and then how would we conceptualize um, the most kind of ideal conditions for young people farming and how would we enact that as a kind of exemplary performance of land reform in the imagination of the larger movement well that becomes agrarian trust which is this yeah it's performance art in land reform and it's 
cultural practice of land commoning, as well as being a community land trust that's in 11 states. Again, all of these projects are interrelated. They all revolve around organic agriculture and community food security and diverse agroecological food systems. And they are in relationship with the actors and the drivers and the kind of quandaries of the people who are actually working. Right. There's something very uh, reflective about that fractal comparison that you just made to not only the form of your your collaborative social work, but also to, um, you know, the natural processes of a garden or a farm or um, an, an individual plant, as you say. And the project and community put on certain things like the podcast and uh, then the New Farmer's Almanac. Talk to us a little bit about the podcast and what it what it was and if it will be again. For nine years, I did a weekly podcast and then started a farm and kind of said, well, something has to give, so I stopped doing it. And then because of COVID, we couldn't hold workshops. Right. So we decided to make kind of a multi multimedia learning platform instead. <laughs> you know, just a little multimedia learning platform. <laughs> and also because of this understanding that we needed to be reaching younger kids. Yeah. That we, you know, we have had a really wonderful success with getting amazing infrastructure for kind of college age people to find a path into agriculture that that infrastructure is much much stronger than it was 10 years ago and the atra.gov apprenticeship website the mofka the main organic farmers and gardeners association journeyman program the farm beginnings network the craft collaborative regional farm training program the serve your country food map like we've built really we the larger movement of farm service organizations have done a pretty great job of making that pathway for young adults or kind of college age people into agriculture. But then there's, because of COVID, we realized, my God, all these younger kids have been thrown out of school and onto the internet to kind of work from a horrible workbook while the world burns and they're being denied a chance to participate in their own survival. And they're drowning in abstraction and digital you know, identity politics, emoji, kind of, it's like an emoji Nintendo game against their soul. Yeah. And they're just denied the opportunity to be in an inquiry because it's all just getting rammed down their throat. And so we thought, okay, we really want to figure out how to make our workshops accessible to younger people and how to make a kind of a curriculum from this learning that we're engaged in that's accessible to younger kids. And because of these smartphones, we could, you know, experiment with a new format. So Earth Life became this kind of museum in your pocket type of an idea where you, where, well, we Greenhorns put together the curriculum. The first, the first one was called Fish. And then the second one is called Berries. And then we have a whole bunch more that we're working on. And basically they, they have little films, they tell you where to go learn more, you know, and it includes, you know, ecology and recipes and wild crafting and native foodways and industrial history and kind of an approach of how, that draws you in that says, okay, well, if you're inquiring, well, follow your inquiry upstream, follow it back into the history, follow it you know, forward into its eventuality, follow, instead of saying, here is the conclusion of your lesson, you know, and here is the value that's assigned, because, so anyway, and I think that this, the consequence of COVID in my, in my uh, estimation, and I think, and I have a lot of hope for this, is that there'll be a lot more humans interested in educational reform, because they've experienced their, 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 the kids in the house being so pissed off 
This is Cultivating Place. Severin von Charner Fleming is a founder and member of the Greenhorns and organizing contributor to the New Farmers Almanac, collectively envisioning and growing a more fertile future through reforming both agriculture and culture. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, the recurring themes which are balm to my soul in this conversation with Severin, her way with words, her big-hearted seeing and thinking and enthusiasm are these. The theme of invitation, the theme of true inquiry, and the theme of the lovely lived concept of fractal relationships, like lupin, like apples, like crystals, formed from a generative, circular, relational network, like all of us right here. Keep growing, my friends. We're back now to our conversation with Severin von Charner Fleming, an organic farmer and thinker in Down East Maine. As we come back, Severin shares the earliest vision behind the new Farmer's Almanac and ultimately envisions a newly reformed CCC and how all of life relates to the structure of seaweed. The first almanac grew up because I was rifling in the stacks of the Prelinger Archive in San Francisco, which is a kind of a community workshop for history and futurism. And it's a workshop, it's a, it's a library that is made available to the public certain days a week and where people can come and research subaltern histories and reform movements. And, you know, it's got feminism, it's got the history of technology, it's got land use, mining, um, natural history. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful place. So there I was in the stacks in the Prelinger archive looking at this newspaper, which was basically a place, a formative thinking spot where soil conservationists and ecologists and kind of restorationists like Louis Bromfield were talking with one another about how this country critically needed to focus on the health of its soil and of its working lands. And so that kind of literary community grew into the Soil Conservation Service and grew into the CCC, the the Conservation Corps of the New Deal era. And Henry Wallace, who was the editor of that newspaper, he actually became the Secretary of Agriculture and the vice president to Roosevelt. And this this, uh, network of thinkers really did manage to uh, crystallize into a program of reform that gave us some of the best parts of our agricultural policy to to this day. And the Soil Conservation Service, which uh, kind of grew into FSA and um, NRCS, the National Resource Conservation Service, that is what is paying for pollinator strips and you know prairie habitat, prairie strips, and wetland protection, and agroforestry, and native you know hedgerows, and so many of these critical conservation practices that are you know still paid for by the federal government on working lands, and those arose from a kind of thinking pot of this you know mini little newspaper. <laughs> uh, and I so it was, and so I was looking at this and learning about this, and then uh, Rick and Megan Prelinger, who are incredibly supportive allies of all the researchers who come through their public research institution that they've cooked up, they said, "Well, you know, you could do that. You could make an almanac, and you could invite everyone to pipe up and contribute and think together and think together publicly and envision the work that lies ahead as a kind of." community thinking project. And I said, okay, here we go. Um, Each of the almanacs subsequent to the first uh, has had a theme. And then we lay out the structure of that theme as as a challenge question to the larger community. And we invite submissions. 
Describe the most recent, the 2021 New Farmers' Almanac for listeners. This last one, this fifth edition, is called Grand Land Plan. And we were, we were going to call it kind of like the Farmer's New Deal, but we decided to make it a bit more agnostic around, you know, who decides what is politically palatable uh, around this notion. But certainly we anticipated that there would be and we hope that there would be a big moment of state engagement. And this has come to pass. Thank you very much to President Biden and Kamala Harris. And the progressive forces in our social democracy are indeed, you know, dribbling a lot of sugar out into the world right now. And the agenda setting that we requested from our community of thinking, writing, farming humans was to say, you know, look left, look right you know, what do you see that needs doing? And let's articulate not just, you know, some of these modest reforms that are commonplace within the agricultural policy sphere, but but really a much broader, deeper, wider, localer way of approaching the restoration of our shared landscape. You know, these are people who are used to walking around the farm and making a list you know, looking at land and seeing what needs to be done. And in fact, it, there's not such a big percentage of the, the American population who look at land and think about what should be done. And, you know, and obviously that's a consequence of all sorts of historical violence that has alienated people from ecology and that has alienated labor from authorship and, you know, where 70% of people who are engaged in agriculture are workers that do not have authorship or sovereignty. Therefore, those of us who are, you know, who are accustomed to authoring really have got to author. <laughs> I think it's a, a, a beautiful continuing question. So in 2019, the theme was the greater we, and in 2021, the theme is Grand Land Plan. What are you looking for at the next theme, Severin? The next thematic that's emerging is about reconstituting and re, um, reshuffling and welcoming and resettlement and uh, renegotiation. The next issue of the Almanac is very much about reconfiguring and recalibrating and renegotiating because COVID has so radically disrupted, especially in the, you know, urban rural settlement, you know, here, of course, a a whole other thing is these small towns that are really ill-prepared to contend with a re-industrialization of the landscape, that you have so many places that have, that are facing green energy and mining and intensification of forestry and kind of intensification of industry that are, you know, ill-prepared to regulate and monitor that growth. Why new farmers? Why not artists? Why not teachers? Why not? And I think these new farmers are all these things. They are artists. They are teachers. They are public policymakers. But the, the kernel at the deepest heart of your work is this idea of new farming. Why? I think about the, 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 the visual metaphor I would invoke is of um, cell membrane. And the cell membrane is made of, you know, has a lipid layer. There's an enclosure and that, inc- that is separates out from in. And that is the being, the being is inside and the, the context is outside. And that our project is to kind of be like um, an active sodium pump bringing material in. That we're recruiting energy into the, the, the cell. And we want to grow the vitality of this, this being. And the being is a new culture. <laughs> the being is... A, that agriculture, you could say, is the beginning yeah. of what led to industrial, what led to modernity, metallurgy, the internet, outer space, virtual reality, and you know, totalit- 
libertarian extractivism, you know, venture finance and, you know, the verge of collapse. You could also say that agriculture is likely to be a portal through which a new culture that operates on different terms might emerge. And so why focus on new people being acculturated into a culture about survival and a culture about regeneration and a culture about autonomy, author, self, self-determination, diversity, resilience, enjoyment, sex, you know, that's juicy. So we, I think we're, we're focused on the input. We're focusing on growing, bringing in, growing, bringing in. So I want you to get as tangibly descriptive as you can get. When you look around you in this spot you have chosen in Maine to commit yourself to the land and the forest and the ocean there, you are gazing at a flower. Your dog is wandering back and forth. The ducks are quacking in the background. You have finished up the stored apples from last year, and hopefully the apple trees are blooming to start again for this year. What are the greatest joys and successes in those terms of this work and life for you, Severin? Just the mystery. I mean, just the the unexpected. Um, yeah, I live in a place that is so rich in wild energy. To be in an animate world is a, just a great pleasure. And and I know obviously there's a you know a will force. It's like we're so great to build a barn. It's so great to you know have garden beds that are weeded, you know. And it's so wonderful, you know. The greenhouse is you know full of salad, and it's so wonderful to have the the basement full of potatoes and the satisfaction of effort and and foresight and planning and all those things. But the kind of magical mystery tour of being in a wild place is where it's at. With all of that in mind, with the gestation of the next new farmer's almanac uh, already underway, is there anything you want to add about the importance of this work at this time uh, and in our places for listeners to take away? Well, um, there's some lovely, there's some lovely young men on their way to us now who are who are going to be the kind of summer research team working on a proposal for the new CCC. We really welcome a revised and expanded version of this supremely successful um, New Deal era program to generate economy for young people getting involved in land restoration. We see this in the same way that military service is a pathway out of rural rural America. We need a pathway in to rural America that is also a, a kind of a, um, not a safe path, but it's a navigable path. And we, we want to build from this rich, collaborative, literary, cultural, political, agricultural work that we've been doing and articulate how state support could yield a coherent life path for young people who want to get involved in healing and for whom the challenge of starting a small farm in, you know, in America, that is not available to everyone, that option. And and so, so a lot of people choose to go to the army or the Peace Corps, and they should be able to go to a land corps or land restoration corps, because, you know, if there's one thing we can say about this moment in the history of capitalism is there's plenty of money. And there's plenty of young people who want to be part of something that's helpful. So how do we make reparations? And I think restoration is reparation. I think reparation is restoration. I think allowing the young people to be part of a solution is the only poetic justice that I know how to work on. So that's one kind of cultural project. 
that we're engaged in this summer. That's the CCC project. Then obviously we have to stop the mine in our watershed. And then we have another project, which is called Seaweed Commons, which is like an international learning community of small scale seaweed people and people who think alongside the seaweed and who are interested in the seaweed. And the seaweed, the seaweed is very similar actually to this question of civic, like the, 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 again, this fractal quality is infuriating to people who want to put us in a box, but I'll talk about seaweed in the same way that I would talk about civic architecture, that it's habitat for a certain kind of relationality and that it's, a, it's the um, enabling context for the whole trophic cascade. So in the same way that, you know, you can't really have a social democracy unless you have a venue within which people form and gestate their, their, their motives for change. You know, so too in the ocean, you only have life because you have photosynthesis and you have creatures eating the bodies of other creatures, you know, transforming the energy of the sun into sugar. And so a lot of the, the project is also kind of switching on to the place that where we sit where what is possible unfurls. I mean, again, back to the garden, you know, you don't know how much you can trust life's force until you're in touch with life's force. There's nothing we can do with young people who don't know about being part of the force of life and the magnetism and the momentum of evolutionary life on earth. You know, this powerful ordering principle of until they're able to understand and anticipate you know, collaborating with such a powerful force, of course, they're only going to believe in emojis and TikTok and, you know, what they can buy on Apple Tunes. That project of the, um, the Civic Calls and, and the Seaweed Commons are both basically about relating to the understory of an eventuality. I know it sometimes probably sounds heady and metaphoric and nebulous, but it is very, very tangible, the progress you are helping to affect. And I thank you for your hard work and big thinking in, in this, the, the structures, the many fractal structures of our world, Severin. The many fractal structures. Thank you for the time. I look forward to inviting you here someday. Thank you for taking the time to share and to be a guest. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Severin von Charner Fleming lives on Smitherin Farm, a certified organic farm in Down East Maine. She is a founding organizer of the Greenhorns, a collective who believe we humans must reform agriculture to survive on this planet and whose mission is to create a welcoming cultural space and a practical professional resource for those new to ecological farming. Join us again next week when we are joined by gardener and chef Dave Smoke McCluskey, an indigenous foods educator and member of the Mohawk Nation who wants you to think about the history of the ingredients in your meals, including those originating from the Native American lands we in the U.S. live on. According to the North American Food Systems Network, Dave's quest for flavorful, real food stems from one simple yet elusive question of his people's past. What has been lost? Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more about and see many images from Severin, the Greenhorns, Smitherin Farm, and the New Farmer's Almanac, head over to cultivatingplace.com where you will find this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX. 
Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.